Oh shit. I'm gonna talk about a, I'm gonna talk about a cult. Yes! I'm so excited. Here we go, folks. <laughs> folks. <laughs> folks. Hello and welcome to 1001 Reasons to Be Afraid of the Dark. I'm Chelsea. I'm Dawn. Um, what are you snacking on today? I snacked a little too hard today. And I had some chips and some cherries and an ice cream sandwich. Nice. I'm living an adult in a, or I'm living a 12 year old self in a 29 year old body. So <laughs> that's, that's allowed. What else is there to be an adult for? Is that exactly? It's basically Friday Eve. Exactly. Do what you want. You're an adult. It's Friday Eve. It's Friday Eve. <laughs> Some of us still have to go to work tomorrow, Don. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, sad. That's okay. I can't just take every Friday off whenever I want. Yes, you can. No, I can't. You totally could. Yes, you can. I believe in you. Okay, well, then I wouldn't be able to afford rent. Just gotta sweet talk the boss. And who would do my job when I'm gone? Uh, hire Amanda. She did, like, admin work. <laughs> <laughs> Just pick one of the things you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, th- this is how I solve all my problems. I just get other people to fix it for me. <laughs> just kidding. I'm quite right, responsible. I'm gone. Bye. It's, a, it's just a kid. <sighs> Alrighty. Well, today I am bringing you to. Coquitlam, British Columbia. <gasps> Coquitlam. Hmm. Oh shit. Okay. Port Coquitlam, to be precise. There okay. are different things, as I learned, according to the internet. They are the same place, but different places. Like one off water, one in the middle, like a blender. So, according to the map, there's the city of Coquitlam. And then, like, a greater area of Coquitlam. And then Port Coquitlam as well. So, like, the city of Coquitlam is, like, surrounding Port Coquitlam. Okay. So, it's like a city inside of a city, according to Google Maps. Neato. I don't know if that's accurate. If you're from Coquitlam, I am sorry. I have never been there. I am confused. <laughs> Please, someone reach out to us. Please, someone explain and clarify. how your city is inside another city. Why do you have three cities in one city? I'm so confused. I think it's just like maybe there's like a regional thing. Like there's the region of Coquitlam. Like there's like the region of Waterloo, which or, is multiple. Cities. Yeah, and like uptown Waterloo, and then downtown Kitchener. Even though it's Waterloo region. Well, there's an uptown or a downtown in like most cities and towns. That's yeah. like a general term for like location within the city oh this is like a legit city with borders inside of another actual city i'm brain fucked right now yep anyway coquitlam i mean probably a beautiful place yes i want to go there clear it up for me (laughs) on where i'm going (laughs) because it is like 27 kilometers away from vancouver okay i'm okay with that it's north of surrey Oh, so beautiful. So Port Coquitlam is home to the Coquitlam First Nation and the Coast Salish First Nation. Ooh. 
Mm -hmm. So Coquitlam actually comes from the name of the small salmon that populated what is now the Fraser River and the Pitt River. <gasps> oh, I love salmon. <laughs> I'm having salmon <gasps> oh, for dinner tonight. Good. Thank you, Coquitlam, for salmon. <laughs> yes, they invented well, the salmon. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> the fish was a primary food source for the Coquitlam people, and that is how they got their name. Nice. Yeah, the Coquitlam people are actively fighting to preserve these waterways and the aquatic ecosystems there, as well as establishing a program with their neighboring tribes, including the Coast Salish, as their native language all derives from the same base language. Very, very cool. The area in and around Coquitlam is where the majority of the French settlers came in the early 1900s, and it still remains the largest French-speaking population of BC. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coquitlam became, shall we say, infested with the white man in 1911. <laughs> when the best way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. When the Canadian Pacific Railroad Company moved their freight operations there from Vancouver. Okay. Yeah. It later became known for the Lowheed? Lowheed? Highway? Some major highway that bisects it. This place sounds like a settler's dream. It's just outside of Vancouver. It has two major rivers, the railroad, location, location, location. This is probably why in 1905, Mr. William Picton purchased some land there to start a farm. Now, let me know the instant you know who this story is about. Uh... <laughs> because bells should be going off in your brain already. Uh, should I say oink oink now or later? You sure should. Oh, God. Oh, God. Ugh. Folks, so get ready to be uncomfortable. He raised pigs, and then his children raised pigs, and then his children's children's raised pigs there. Then, in the child. late 1950s, <laughs> the Pictons were forced to sell their farm to make way for the Lowheed, Lowheed Highway. The big highway. Which is apparently still a very important highway. Uh, in 1963, Leonard Picton and his wife Helen bought 40 acres of swamp for $18,000. What a steal! Mm. They managed to move the original farmhouse from William Picton's property onto this new property and raised their own children and pigs. Oh, shit, eh? Yeah. They had oh. three children, Robert, David, and Linda Linda actually grew up in the city at a boarding school, but Robert and David grew up on the farm and eventually took over. Linda is still alive and well. Uh, she lives in Vancouver. And for obvious privacy reasons, that's all we know about her. She probably changed her name. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Uh, she married a wealthy businessman and... Never really came back to her family ever again. Which, like, for the best. They're kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yes, Robert and David grew up on the farm, eventually took it over. I would like to mention very clearly here that Robert and David stopped selling their pork commercially several years prior to the following events, so their pigs were not consumed by the masses. Oh. Yes, I'm giving you this one scrap of relief before we dive into what later became known as Death Farm. Ugh. 
So their father bought this land for $18,000 in 1963. In 1994, it was valued at $7.2 million. Only 30 years had passed and the land increased 400 times in value. Even after? That, that was just 1994. 94, okay. Yep, so 30 years passed, increased by 400 times. And what I mean with the current Canadian housing market, it hasn't exactly slowed down in value in any way. So, uh, in the fall of 1994, Robert and David sold a portion of their land to a townhouse development company for just under $2 million, and another portion of the land to the city of Port Coquitlam to create a park for another $1.2 million. So with just shy of $3 million in profit, their brothers were having a great day. They still had a bunch of farmland to themselves, but David took his portion and decided to move off the farm to a property just down the street and opened a quote-unquote club called Piggy's Palace. No way. I didn't hear about that. Yep. What? Oh, it's, it's a key point of order in this okay. story. Uh, so this left Robert and his pigs to do as they please. Of course, to all Canadians and anyone who has watched Criminal Minds, we know exactly what Robert and his pigs got up to. In 1995, Catherine Gonzalez went missing. A few months later, Catherine Knight went missing. Then Dorothy Spence. Then Diana Melnick. Tanya Hollick. Olivia right. Williams. Francis Young. Stephanie Lane. Helen Hallmark. Janet Henry and at least 17 other women after that. The details of these murders were so gruesome that the police and courts refused to release full details to the media or the public. Part of this reasoning is due to a Canadian law that prohibits certain case details from being released so that a jury can be more impartial, but even now that 20 years have passed since Robert's arrest, the full details remain hidden. This is to say we have no details, you don't become Canada's most famous serial killer for nothing. Yep. I'm going to talk about Piggy's Palace briefly before we get into Robert Picton's atrocious hobbies. So David opens Piggy's Palace with his share of the money and moves off the farm. I know I called it a club before because I really don't know a better term for it. It was a piece of property with a house and a trailer and the main building was used as a nightclub for the less law-abiding citizens and was known for extensive amounts of cocaine and prostitutes. There was also always a pig roasting on a spit. Now I know I also said the pigs were no longer mass distributed for pork or sent to the grocery stores, but if you wanted to partake in the Piggy's Palace roast pig, it did come from Robert's farm. I would never eat pork uh, again. So bad. Um, but here's a fun fact about Piggy's Palace. It was a non-profit society. I don't know what that means. But during the non-drinking drugs sex hours, Piggy's Palace served as a meeting center for local okay. sports teams, schools events, right. city events, you name it. Hockey moms would gather at this thing. It had a complete <laughs> double life. Of note, when they threw their Halloween bash, you could let your kids run around the property in costumes in the dark. Well, you went inside and partook in sex and drugs and, and pork, so that's fun. <laughs> oh, so bad. Uh, the women Robert picked and killed were poor, 
sometimes homeless, right. sometimes drug addicts, sometimes prostitutes. Uh-huh. He could get them either from Peggy's Palace or two nearby cheaper hotels. Women who fit this description were disappearing before Robert, of course, just like they sadly do in most countries, but it was a bit different in Port Coquitlam. Before Robert, if a woman went missing, they would often have a body turn up. With Robert, there was no body, no evidence, nothing to scare the public into pressuring police for answers. On top of this, there was police and RCMP indifference to missing indigenous women, prostitutes, homeless, junkies. These women were not considered worthy enough of their attention. So Robert was able to continue his murders for six years before someone finally caught on. It was such a sin because they literally classified these poor women as like just a piece of shit. Like could care less about where they went. Um, But their families noticed. And they were... Oh... Robert would sit alone in the bar area of one of these two hotels and wait to find a woman he thought was an easy target. One of the bartenders in a later interview said that Robert was a wannabe and pretended like he was in a motorcycle gang, but no one ever believed it. The bartender reportedly wasn't surprised at all when the news broke of Robert's crimes, so he always seemed like the kind of guy everyone should avoid, as if he gave off a clear vibe that if you hung out with him, something was definitely going to happen to you and it was not going to be good the bodies of his victims will never truly be found aside from a couple of bone fragments or teeth found in the dirt of the farm the most that was ever found were sawed off body parts he stored in his freezer for later primarily hands and feet the rest were met with a wood chipper and fed to the pigs he has admitted to 49 murders. The DNA of 15 to 22 women have been found on his farm. He was only convicted for the murder of six women, was charged for the murder of 27, and is serving life imprisonment. He will be up for parole for the first time in 2032, at which point he will be 83 years old. On February 5th, 2002, police arrived at the Pictum farm with a search warrant for illegal firearms. When an inhaler with the name of a current missing woman was found, he was taken into custody and they got a warrant to search the farm for her or signs of Robert's involvement. The following day, Pictum was charged with storing a firearm contrary to regulations, possession of a firearm while not being holder of a license, and possession of a loaded restricted firearm without a license. He was later released and was kept under police surveillance. Then, on February 22nd, Picton was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson. Over the next seven months, 13 more murder charges were added for the deaths of Jacqueline McDonald, sorry, McDonald, Diane Rock, Heather Bottomley, Andrea Josbury, Brenda Wolfe, Georgina Pappin, Patricia Johnson, Helen Hallmark, Jennifer Firminger, Heather Chinock, Tanya Hollick, Sherry Irving, and Inga Hall. This brought the total to 15 charges for first-degree murder, making it the largest investigation of a serial killer in Canadian history. On May 26, 2005, 
12 more charges were laid against him for the killings of Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven, Deborah Lynn Jones, Marnie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Carrie Kosky, Sarah Devries, Cynthia Felix, Angela Jardin, Wendy Crawford, Diana Melnick, and one Jane Doe, bringing oh the total number of first-degree murder charges to 27. Because of the amount of victims, the judge separated them into two groups. The first trial was to be held for the murder of six women, of which there was a different type and amount of evidence for. What those exact details are still aren't very clear, even though the information ban technically lifted in 2010. The remaining victims were to be held in a second trial at a later date. The jury found him not guilty of first-degree murder, but guilty of all six counts of second-degree murder. The life sentence he received is the same sentence he would have received if he was found guilty of first-degree murder. The big upset in this incredibly long trial was that the Crown's case was built on Robert being the sole perpetrator of the crimes, while Robert's lawyer was adamant from start to finish that Robert was not guilty and that there was a group of people involved in this scheme. There was no evidence that pointed to accomplices, but it was that possibility that made the jury drop from first degree to second. Oh yeah, there was a theory that his brother was helping him, wasn't there? With the amount of excavation equipment and the size of the property, the $70 million investigation, including the demolishing of the main house in the barn, and the digging and sifting of the land, the investigation was fenced off for several years and was named Canada's Ground Zero because of how similar it looked to New York's Ground Zero after 9-11. You have to wonder how Robert was able to kill so many women for so long without being investigated by police for anything earlier on. Well, women did witness and fall victim to him and escape. Wendy Eistetter was stabbed in the abdomen by Robert a few months prior to his arrest, but the charges didn't stick. Years earlier, Lynn Ellingson was walking by the farm one day and she saw a woman hanging from a meat hook. Robert was skinning her alive. But she didn't come forward until news of his arrest broke loose in 2002 because she feared for her life. Like, I I would like to say that if I saw that happening, I would be immediately calling 911. But like, when you see that, no one knows how you would react in that kind of a situation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now let's get into the disgusting details. Robert was a butcher, which meant he had a slaughterhouse on his farm and had all the tools that came with it. He lured his victims from downtown Eastside Vancouver with the promise, with the promise of more money and or drugs. Once he had them at his farm, he would restrain them with handcuffs, strangle them to death with a wire, or shoot them. Then he would bisect their heads and cut off their hands and feet. These would often get stored in his freezer. The, the bisection and disarticulation were identical to the ways he would prepare his pork. He disposed of their remains by putting the body through a wood chipper and feeding it to his pigs. There is concern that some of the remains were in the barrels of waste he would bring to the processing plant. So this is what happens to the parts of the pig or cow or whatever animal it may be, the parts that can't be used for anything else by the butcher or farmer. 
these scraps or bio waste are put in barrels and dropped off at a rendering plant. That material then gets rendered into the plant and gets turned into grease or taro or high-protein bone meal. Okay. It can also be processed as an ingredient in some makeup products, depending on where you live or buy your makeup from. There were never any official recalls, and officials made statements that there were no human remains in consumer products. But the truth is that there is no way to actually know for sure. Robert did state at one point during the trial that some of the women would end up in the barrels with the pig byproducts. So I read through the transcript of his conversation in his holding cell before the police interrogated him immediately after his arrest. They planted an undercover cop in the cell with him. Robert says he is fucked and that he didn't do it, but that he's famous now and everyone from Vancouver to Hong Kong knows his name. Then he compared himself to Bin Laden. He also claimed he was previously given an attempted murder charge after he was mugged by a woman who slashed him from his chest up his throat and cut the top of his tongue off, but I didn't find any proof of that story. He claimed innocence on that one too, stating self-defense, but that nothing he said mattered because he was a man and she was a woman and that therefore the police are a bunch of slang and swear words that I don't want to share. He also insinuated that his brother knew about all the murders and warned him to be more careful or he would get caught. Now, he also claimed that since the cops took over his farm, they hadn't fed his pigs in five days, which I find hard to believe, since they would be checking the pigs for traces of human DNA. But anyway, um, he also told the undercover officer that they were about to close out his farm and he was going to lose everything because a subdivision was going to be built on his farmland, when in reality, he was the one who sold part of his land to that company in the first place. I also thought it was funny when the cops started talking about the internet and the guy said he had never had a computer and he had never seen the internet. So the cop immediately starts trying to tell him he should get the internet because of all the porn you can watch. And Robert just goes, oh, I'm not ready for that. I'm just a pig man. Sir, you brutally murdered 49 women. You are a literal pig of a man. Yeah, you are a pig man. Then says what the cops did by putting a six-foot fence up around his property was grotesque. Yeah, all right. Okay, buddy. Sure, sure. He also thought the media was going to make him a celebrity and he was going to appear on America's Most Wanted, while still claiming innocence, of course. At one point, they were talking about random childhood stories and what they did at their free time. Robert allegedly put two of his pigs in his truck, drove them to Vancouver, and let them loose on the streets of downtown so that he could watch the police chase after them. No, he didn't. Apparently that was Christmas Eve, 1997. Oh my god! Merry Christmas, you folks. And for Christmas Eve, 1998, he wanted to let three ostriches loose. Another prank he had planned was to bring a suitcase full of bats into the Vancouver Hotel and let them loose in the elevator. Where does he get... Oh, where would he get bats? What the fuck? Then it dawns on him that he has three dead ostriches buried on his farm somewhere and goes, oh shit, they're probably going to think I have three dead people when they find those ostrich legs. <laughs> so it is commonly mentioned in police and crime TV shows that people who are homeless, prostitutes, and drug addicts are the easiest targets for kidnapping, murder, etc. There are less eyes on them. 
There's less of a fuss when they go missing. This is the same for Indigenous women. The discovery of what has become known as Death Farm did serve as a wake-up call to local authorities and Canadians that we should be paying more attention to the missing and murdered Indigenous women. In 1991, before the Picton children made their millions, there was a Valentine walk in downtown Vancouver hosted by the families of, quote, transient women who had gone missing or been found murdered over the last five or so years. It is possible that Robert had begun killing at that time, but we don't know for sure. The families suspected a serial killer was alive in the area, but police didn't bother looking for it. As David moved off the farm and Robert had the place to himself, the number of missing women rose above 60, and still authorities did not consider a serial killer. A large number of Robert's victims were Indigenous women, and this case helped the push for federal investigation into the missing and murdered Indigenous women that began in 2016. A national survey was conducted last year that found most Indigenous women are more concerned about domestic violence than they are about COVID-19, and this was conducted during the height of the pandemic here. Many more Indigenous women are experiencing violence during this pandemic than usual. In May 2020, 17% of Indigenous women have experienced violence, physically or psychologically, in the past three months compared to 10% reporting violence from their spouse over the last five years in 2014. It was also found that 70% of Indigenous women who were financially impacted by the pandemic became victims of abuse and or violence. The RCMP released a report revealing an additional 1,181 cases of missing or murdered Indigenous women and girls in 2013 that the public was never aware of. According to the CBC, there were more than 140 Indigenous women and girls reported as victims of a homicide whose death was deemed suspicious or who died while in institutional care from 2016 to 2019. According to multiple databases, there is a rate of three deaths of Indigenous women and girls per month here. Oh my god. Good story, Chelsea. Oh, man. That was dark. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was like, this, it's like the second time hearing about that story and there's always new information that kind of pops up. <sighs> Well, are you ready for me? I'm so ready. All right. So, guys and gals, or he, she's them, they, whatever your title is. Whoever you identify as, we welcome you. Yes, we welcome you. Welcome. Open arms. Big hugs. No COVID, though. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Distance hugs. Air hugs. Yeah. Elbows. Whatever you want to do. Come sit beside the fire with us and be scared to death. Come get close, my child. (laughs) (laughs) We're diving into the year of 1924. So, obvious uh, that in that time frame, people were very gullible. Oh, so gullible. And anybody who is worth money, you better believe someone's going to be after you to try and trick you into spending on what they would believe as valuable Mm -hmm. um, investments. Mm -hmm. If you don't know yet what I am talking about, these two women are known as the Blackburn cult. Yes. 
So, 60-year-old May Otis Blackburn and her 24-year-old daughter, Ruth, were making a killing of bilking followers, um, like just milking people of their money and telling them of this beautiful experience that they had by, they were spoken to by angels and visions of like Jesus. And it just got to this whole like religious thing that they could actually predict um, when someone's like, they, they could resurrect somebody that there is a greater being after oh life, blah, 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 right? Like you name it. So, um, all of these deep pocketed investors did join in and some of them were called disciples. Um, so the women believe that Gabriel and Michael, if anybody knows of any religious contexts, uh, that they would guide them to hidden reserves of gold and oil. And so sure enough, they needed money to make this happen. They had a space in California where they would do different seances and they would do some pretty fucked up shit. Not going to lie. So, let me dive into that a little bit more. <laughs> Yay! So, the Great Eleven posted up in Simi Valley, where members built cabins and a temple. Um, so, this was known as, um, like, King of Peace um, and, like, the Light of God kind of deal. Um, and so, the only way they could really get this money kind of recycling instead of just depending on these big investors they would get people off the streets and they would hire them. And so they decided to open up a tomato packing plant. All of the paychecks went to the cult. And um, they basically just said that we're going to take your money and Christ, Christ will return it to you. <laughs> As they okay. promised they would, right? It was so like... But people in 1924, people were like, oh, shit, okay, well, here it goes, right? Great. Something that they could believe in that was bigger than themselves, I suppose. So, at night, the devotees gathered a natural uh, amphitheater on a brush and rock-strewn hillside to watch high priestesses in their long purple robes kill mules, as they often were like, referred to as jaws of death. Mm-hmm. After the gruesome sacrifices, forest rangers reported seeing the cultists dance in the nude. Like, we're yes. talking, now we're talking witches, girls. Now I'm about it. On the same site, they constructed a brick oven in which they baked disciple Florence Turner, age 30, of Monterey Park just to cure her of her blood disease. That's called murder. She literally, they're like, oh, you're, you're sick. So here's a pit of fire. And they threw her in. No. She died two days later of Two birth. days? It wasn't that big of an oven. It oh, burned okay. her slowly alive. Two days? Yeah. <sighs> so, everyone's starting to get a little antsy. They're like, okay, we're okay. going to get all their money. And we're not really seeing anything happen. And you're doing these seances. And you're dancing in the nude. And you're... Basically, sacrificing sacrificing people and burning people alive. And killing meals and sacrificing their blood on their bodies. Yeah, that's not cool. That's pretty, that's pretty fucked up. 
Uh, so, but Jesus was apparently taking a long time to uh, like appear, and so those promise um, for wealthy investors, kids. right? <laughs> sure enough, at some point, it caught up to her, and Blackburn was arrested for fraud charges. Just because of all of the money, she was just kind of. I'm sorry, only fraud charges, not so far. Okay. Yeah, so far. Great. And so then later convicted of eight counts of theft. But mind you, she still had lots of money under her belt that she no one really knew about. So she had bail. The grand theft, uh, there was like a little public thing where it was the grand theft charges grew out of a complaint by Clifford Dabney, a wealthy oil operator, at, that the cult leader had like milked him out of $40,000. So that would be like 200 grand now. Yeah, that's a lot of money. He testified she obtained the money from him to finance the writing of a book that was supposed to be called The Great Sixth Seal, which she told him was being dictated by Archangels Gabriel and Michael. Oh, boy. So if, like, <laughs> this reminds me of South Park when it's, like, uh, the book of, is it like the Mormon book or something? Yeah, the Book of Mormon. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. Right? So basically these angels were telling her to write a book and uh, she would do that. She wouldn't do that. I love how you equated that to hearing the Book of Mormon referenced at South Park and not just knowing what the Book of Mormon is. <laughs> You're welcome. So you don't know. <laughs> religion is just not my strong suit. <laughs> I just believe you're. if you're a good person, yeah, girl, karma's going to be good. Um, so upon her promise to reveal the secrets of the book to spoke to him to three years before it was distributed to the public he said he agreed to finance it but the fraud case put the great 11 on the radar for law enforcement and they found themselves in even hotter water after a body of a 16 year old cult member was buried under the adopted parents house in venice california so um Next to the young Willow Rhodes, so this is the 16-year-old that was buried, mm-hmm. were a corpses of seven dogs that represented the seven stones of angels. No! Uh, like angel, angel's trumpet. No! That's the dog's casket. Like, no! oh, it's just so sad. So the you cult- can't warn someone if the dog dies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was just reading and it kept going. <laughs> oh, I know. But like, figured too, like, they're sacrificing mules. There are uh, many more unfortunate animals. So, um, the cult claimed that she died of natural causes, apparently succumbed to toothache. But what happened after she died raised some eyebrows. So, apparently... They didn't necessarily kill her. She was complaining of a toothache while she was working, and it got so bad that she had an infection and um, succumbed to the that disease. To the okay, I was gonna ask, I'm like, how do you succumb to a toothache? Oh, infection. Uh, infection. Yep. Nineteen twenty-four, and they're gonna give you cocaine for it. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> no, <there> it <laughs> or morphine or something. Rub <laughs> this on your teeth. It'll it'll fix everything. Oh God. So disintegrates in your mouth. Oh, much better. Thanks. They did some pretty weird shit to her. Um, so the parents were obviously, well, the adoptive adoptive parents were pretty like distraught from this. And excuse me, uh, Miss Blackburn was just like, 
oh, don't worry too much. If you do these things that I tell you to do, she will resurrect in like 1,200 days. Oh my god, no. Yeah. Also, why 1,200 days? I don't fucking know. This chick was making up a whole bunch of bullshit. Like, what a random number. Uh, yeah. So, Miss Rhodes, the one with the toothache and whatnot, mm-hmm. her body was preserved with ice, salt, and spices. In the grave were found the bodies of seven dogs as well. The girl's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Rhodes, testified that the burial was made when they lost faith in Mrs. Blackburn, and the autopsy revealed that the girl died of natural causes, like I said. Um, And, like, it was there for, like, a really long time where they were, like, just holding onto this body that was soaked in water and all of this other stuff. Ew. Yeah. And then they buried her. My God. Yeah. So, although other cult members were reported to have mysteriously disappeared, not to mention that strange baking business with Florence Turner, mm-hmm. um, yeah, with the whole wood stove and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, no charges were ever brought to those cases. What? They couldn't charge her for missing people if there were no bodies to be found. Oh, well, it's burnt! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Blackburn was released after appealing to her case in 1931, and um, she uh, basically was just like, this is a free country, like, we're free to, like, religious worship, that kind of thing, and, like, whatever happens in actions, like, they can't really push too far yeah, on no, it. that is incorrect. You're free to celebrate and practice your religion however you choose so long as it doesn't harm anyone <laughs> right but like it was so twisted back then like i don't understand why like well even like having animals apparently was just like you let them roam and like they were they were a dog they were they weren't like a, a baby like we would usually like yeah that's true right? that, the whole babying thing definitely developed more modern era yeah, but, like, she totally got away of this murder and away with money. She was the worst hustler out there, yet the best, because she made all of this money, killed some people, killed some animals, and danced in the nude in blood. Like, she I had dance in the nude all for it, but just don't I wonder how much, like, her psychosis was like was she just like totally aware of everything that she was doing and that everything was a lie or that like did she genuinely believe these things that she was doing i think she might have like genuinely believed it because at that time it was just her and her daughter she needed to make something of herself and but then what did the daughter how much did the daughter believe oh like she followed her mom like like a lost puppy. Like, she believed whatever she believed. That's so bizarre. Like, at some point, you gotta question it. Yeah. That's so weird. Ugh. Oh, yeah. So, um, Rhodes, the body, they left her in that bath of water, ice, and spice, and salt. 14 months. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine how bad that must have smelled? 
That poor woman. Could you imagine having to be the one to get that body out and bury it? Uh, but to put her in a coffin? Ugh. Like, th- what happens to the skin after that? Yeah. Oh, God. And she did have, um, Mrs. Blackburn, she actually had a husband, like, after, like, her previous husband that uh, was her daughter's mm-hmm. uh, father. Um, and sure enough, like, he was quite wealthy as well. She stole all his money, and he mysteriously disappeared. I'm not even surprised. Right? Like, I'm sorry, was that not what we expected to happen? <laughs> But the funny thing before that, like, obviously, when the relationship was quite early on, he was known as North Star of the World. He led the cult members to build cabins. What? Isn't that bad? What? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, and, they, and then he would just tell them, like, you were building this, and you're going to stay here, and you are going to wait until the return of Christ. And he will give you all of the answers and all of the glory and all of the money and all of the love and blah, 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 blah. Right? Yeah. But that was uh, Blackburn cult. Like, early, early cult. Mm-hmm. Like, I know I've, I've, I've heard of them before, but I, I never knew all the details. Like, I never... I had no idea about the murder and the sacrifice. I really only heard about the money part of it. That it was like for the return of Christ and everything. But yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. There wasn't a lot, but there is like a news script that um, it says cult queen tells of being chained two months to bedpost. Oh my God. That's so weird. And Mrs. Blackburn reveals rights. Oh, Ugh. Yeah, that was from like 19, what was that, 1923? Ooh, creepy. No, thank you. Yeah. Well, that's what I have, folks, so don't try to cult. Don't don't try to cult. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And for the love of God, if someone says, hey, look in this wood oven, don't goddamn look. <laughs>